Oh, is it gonna stop laughing? I mean, I get it's it's hysterical, but can can it just? Brian, okay, I, I can't I can't work I, like this. I don't know. What, this is not the normal wheel. I get used it. To dealing with. I, I don't get know it. How this one operates. Look at. Uh, I can't deal with this. So if you want to record an episode tonight, you're standing next to it. Just hold it. Hold it still, please. I, I, all right. You just hold it. The episode. Alright. Ah, oh! Ah. Hmm. Oh, this is so much worse. Oh, this is. Oh my god, why did I tell you to do that? This is so much worse. Just, uh, I'm just, not even holding it. I let just go. Let go. I let go. And it's, still, go. it's still, still screaming. Oh my god. <sighs> Thank god it stopped. Eric? Yeah. What's that sound? I'm pretty sure it's urinating. What did we do to deserve this? Welcome to Nerds on History. I am Eric Brickmont. And I am Brian Moriarty. Hello, sir. Hello. How you doing? I'm good. Yeah, how's your week been? Uh, just getting started. Very, very busy today at work. Yeah. Yeah, putting out a lot of fires. Yeah. Yeah. Did we tell the audience that, uh, you know, about what happened at uh, my job? That you got a promotion? Yeah, did we tell them that? I don't I think remember. so. Oh, well, surprise. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Brian Moriarty, promoted individual. Yes. Very appropriate. Thank you. Excellent. There you go. Yes. Yeah, which means I, I'm not a manager, which is perfect because honestly you don't want to be a manager i don't want the responsibility of hiring and firing i really don't i like being involved with the interview process but not and being able to influence those decisions but not being the one who has to make them so you know i'm, I'm a team lead is what i am now which gives me lots of influence and you know handle scheduling nice little pay bump that's but, right and our uh, mystery job the mystery job. The mystery job, exactly. Mystery um, Incorporated. So really, really, all the perks of management, none of the responsibility. It's basically the best job ever. Well, congratulations again. Obviously, I've said it in person uh, before this recording, but for the sake of all of our listeners, I, I, I say it for them. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. It, yeah, I've had a bit of a crazier week myself, however. Oh, yeah. I know you've had some pretty serious stuff you had to take care of. Yeah, I was in the hospital... For two days, not as a patient. However, my daughter was. Uh, she's fine. She's doing great now. But my uh, my baby, my two month old, uh, started experiencing seizures, and we don't know why. We still haven't uh, found out. Thankfully, however, uh, MRI, EEG, blood, urine, feces, the whole ten yard, everything has come back negative. Uh, there's nothing that indicates any serious problem and it's now been about five days and we haven't seen a single seizure so yeah, and you said the doctor actually even said that there are some times we're just in young child development that sometimes seizures just happen that's right and it's you know the brain is still developing so neurologically it's very immature and there's these situations where yeah the the brain is just kind of misfiring if you will and these these are happening it could also be environmental it was really hot that day for a few days uh, while it was happening, actually. So, I mean, we, we don't really know, but we know that everything is okay now. Um, so listeners, do not worry. But yeah, it was took about 10 years off of my life and added a few thousand additional gray hairs. It's true. His head. hair is actually a little more salt in the pepper, uh, as it were. It's crazy. Martha and I were sitting on the couch, and she looked over at me, and she said, 
I really think your hair is grayer than it was 48 hours yeah, ago. Yeah, well, when, so when you meet Eric, he kind of looks like a Bond villain, at least when he did it first. <laughs> oh, thanks. No, he did, because no, when I first met you, you had a goatee. Yes. And you had this one wisp of silvery hair. <laughs> On your head, and, and it's so been, it looks very Bond villain. Right, it's been almost four years now, and the beard's gone now. Yeah, I shaved it off. Yeah, yeah. which we haven't put the new picture on the website yet, but yeah, you know, it's a different look, and your hair's different too. But now there is some definitely some noticeable gray. You still look young. You still look like a guy in his late twenties who just happens to have a little stress uh, <laughs> under his belt. Yeah. But it's not like you're a Steve Martin or anything. Like, well, your right, hair's totally right, right. white. I'm not quite a, a a gray fox, more of like a like a gray um, field mouse. I'll go field mouse. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Let's go with that metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway. I don't consider myself very foxy, so I was going with something a little yeah. more meek. Well, I know yeah. I speak for our audience when I say I'm I'm relieved that everything is okay. Thank you, my friend. Yes. And, and uh, thank you to all my Nerdonomy family who are a tremendous uh, source of strength and support yeah. during those. Very difficult forty-eight hours. Right, totally. All of you were, um, all of you were amazing. Yeah, and I love you all. I was the mobile therapist. <laughs> you were, <laughs> you were. Yeah, trying to walk you through it. But as as we've already said, you no, know, Eric and I are best friends. Yep. Aside from doing neuronomy and from being coworkers, so you know, I'm just glad that, that everything worked out. So am I. So, you yeah. know what else makes me glad? Sunshine and ice cream, and listener, listener feedback. feedback. That's right. This week in listener feedback. Well, Brian, what have we got this week? We have a couple pieces of feedback uh, that we didn't get to last week because we just ran out of time. We did say last week that we would address Andrew's email. To be totally honest, we uh, we read a lot of what Andrew said, and it, it stands in a pretty firm contradiction of what we were talking about. So what we want to do is we really want to sit on it and double check to make sure all of our facts are correct and all the facts that he says are correct. Because when there's that much of a contradiction, I just want to make sure that we're not off base exactly so uh andrew we appreciate your feedback nonetheless we just want to double check the research but that being said speaking he gave us research on our samurai and ninja episode we also have rena who gave us some great feedback on it she's a sandan which is a third degree black belt in judo which i thought was really cool so thank you automatically makes her a badass and an honorary kick-ass woman from history and she also studies kendo right which of course is a japanese sword fighting style uh, and in the decade she's been practicing, she's also done quite a bit of research into samurai history, particularly in its relation to the history of contemporary kendo. She said that I had said that they had spoken, they, they had practiced uh, Aikido as their martial art form. Uh, it, that's incorrect. It's actually Kenjutsu, uh, the sword arts, which, okay, so Kenjutsu must have been what Ken, Kendo ended up becoming. Kind of how ninjutsu, you know, how I was talking about is, is the modern version the their studies were wide and varied and, and were from all over the place but they've kind of become an amalgamized into what is now referred to today as ninjutsu so i think it's probably a similar situation Correct. and they also did what was called aikijutsu which was the uh the deflective techniques which became aikido basically what she's referring to is a combat versus a non-combat oriented form of martial arts um there's a lot of interesting parallels in japanese martial arts styles where the ending jutsu refers to the technique for combat, and Do refers to the non-combatant style. So Jujutsu became Judo through a couple evolutions, right? And so she's referring to Kenjutsu and Kendo and then Aikijutsu and Aikido. So uh, similar roots, of course, but with different intentions. 
Yeah. So my, my apology for making the misnomers. Uh, I really do appreciate you clarifying that. And thank you for sharing your experience with us. She also wanted to mention, she was a little disappointed that we didn't get into more samurai women. And I couldn't agree with you more. We did a lot of research into it. And we just, in our conversation, we just got so worked up into the history of it that we didn't. And she brings up some great points, which is that samurai women were very well trained. As and, were women who, in the art of, of the ninja as well. Yeah, they were supposed to be because they were, it was their obligation to defend their households in the event that their husbands were killed or were off in battle and they got attacked. Um, so very, very important, which is also why we wanted to mention that uh, the Grandmaster Tanaka uh, and his and his daughter are both master samurai swords people right. in Japan now, and they both have the same level of skill uh, with both archery and in katana work. So thank you for bringing that up. She also mentioned that we could have featured the Tomu Gozen uh, in your Warrior Women episode, but hopefully you can find another time to cover more Warrior Women. Well, that, we already stated that's going to happen. That, yeah. that was um, a, one of the best listener-suggested feedbacks that we've ever gotten, and it's going to have a sequel. Definitely. Anything else? No, I think that's all I got from my front. What have you, what have you got? I've got one on my end. Uh, this comes from Michelle, and the subject is current historical figures. Wait, what? That's, that's the whole subject. I, I added the inflection, but okay. I, I assume there is an inflection. Anyhow, she says, I know May I Suggest Something is coming to a close, but I just had a really interesting topic that I thought I'd share, and maybe you'd be interested in tackling at some point in the future. What I've had in mind is an episode on people who are alive and active in society today that most likely will be historical figures in the future. I like where this is going. There are the obvious ones, such as presidents, uh, monarchs, the tech company creators, but maybe there are people that are less known, but time in time will be important. My suggestion for this is John Green. Unless you are a YouTube or a YA novel nerd like myself, many people don't know of John, but he's been called this generation's J.D. Salinger. Uh, maybe in 50 years, teens all over the world will be reading his novels in their classrooms. I'm sure that many other people who may not uh, seem like major players now, but will be in textbooks down the line. And this comes from Michelle. I think it's an interesting premise because let's let's face it. We talked about where is our future tech that we've been waiting for with uh, the hoverboard episode, right? Right. And, you know, with that, we were kind of guessing where we might be at in the future at some point based on where we are now. Is it really such a stretch to do what Michelle is suggesting and take people who are either well-known and or like she's suggesting lesser knowns who will one day be recorded in history and it, it, it's tricky right because we don't want to sound like we are promoting these people but we we should be at least acknowledging people's uh, achievements sure i think it's an interesting idea michelle we're gonna sit on it for a little while and see if we can uh, suss an episode out of it but uh one way or another hey thanks for the suggestion absolutely so, Brian, remind me, what, what month is this again? It is May I Suggest Something. Yes. yes. So, uh, an entire month of user-suggested episodes, and we've done three of them so far. This is our fourth and final. I, I cannot believe it's almost done. This I is know. the last one that we're going to do of this. I'm really yeah. sad. Well, for now. Well, yeah, I know, but th this month has just gone by yeah. really fast. It has it has gone by really fast. It's crazy to think that we are going into, or we just, by the time this episode releases, we'll have just had more Memorial Day weekend. That's you know? nuts. Yeah. It's totally nuts. The official kickoff of the summer season, even though it's not the summer solstice yet. It's still the unofficial. It's the season. Official start of summer. Tis the season to yeah. be overheated. And last week we had started off 
our list of 10 of history's craziest monarchs. I'm sorry, 10 of the, the, the what? 10 of history's craziest monarchs. Yeah, I'm going to, I promised myself that I would hold you to that for uh-huh. every single episode. Sure. <laughs> and uh, we covered some great territory, right? We talked about Charles VI, right? Charles the Mad. We also talked about Fruk, of course, of Egypt, right? And then uh, I also covered Christian of Denmark. Right. And then I also covered uh, Fyodor I of Russia. And then finally, uh, the Zhangdi Emperor of China. That's right. Yeah. And all of his wacky palaces. A palace for everything, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> right. And uh, we continue that that list this evening with a few more. So where do we want to start? I really think you should kick it off. Okay. Because I'm going to end it with Caligula, and there's no other way that we can do this, really. We have to end with Caligula. You don't start with Caligula. No, you can't start with Caligula, because then you have nothing to finish with. Exactly. Right? You have to have a big finish with a big... Never mind. We won't go there. (laughs) Um, But folks, if you know Caligula, you know exactly what I'm talking about. (laughs) Yeah. So um, let's start with a name who will be infamous to the American history scholar, but also kind of an unfortunate side note in the history of the British monarchy as well. So who am I referring to? Well, it has to be, of course, the the king of which we uh, gained our liberation from England, uh, our freedom, our, our independence. And that, of course, is Mad King George III. His formal name was, he had a very long title, George III, King of Great Britain, King of Ireland until the two two kingdoms were officially united, and then he became King of Great Britain and Ireland. But he was at one point three kings. He was King of Ireland, King of Great Britain, which of course is England and Scotland, because it's, it's the island, not just the two countries. And uh, Hanover, he became King of Han- Hanover in 1814, well into his madness at that point. Well, he was King George the Third, so it only makes sense that he would rule over three separate yeah. kingdoms. So let, let let me just give a little background on on that whole change in British history too, because he became king at a point where the, the role of the monarchy is starting to change dr- dramatically. Very much so. So if you all remember back when we were talking about Queen Elizabeth, right? She fought off uh, a lady called you know, Mary Stuart, Mary Queen of Scots. Why is that important? Well, she was technically an heir to the throne too. Her cousin, James, becomes king after Elizabeth dies without an heir, therefore bringing in the Stuart dynasty, right? So you have James I, Charles I, Charles II, James II. And uh, throughout this long list of, of, or I should say, a short list of monarchs, uh, you have lots of turmoil between the Protestant and Catholic religions. Right. Uh, I believe it was James II who was actually Catholic himself because of the way he was raised and tried to change Britain back into a Catholic nation. Really irritated lots of people, particularly Parliament, um, and he's the only king who's ever been deposed in British history, not including Charles I, who was decapitated altogether. He was ex- he, he was the only king to be executed. Suffice to say, the Stuart dynasty did not do good things for the British monarchy. Yeah. Um, it wasn't working for, for Parliament. So Parliament ordered, or invited, I should say, uh, his daughter Mary and her husband, William, to be the king and queen of England. Now, William was German. And in fact, they were uh, of the House of Hanover, which is the big house that was the Holy Roman Empire's house. It was the the family that ruled the Holy Roman Empire throughout all of Europe. And their hands are in a lot of honeypots in different royal families out there. You know, you can... F- At one point, there was also the Habsburg family who were also involved. And we'll talk great. about them but on you my can, side, You too. can tie Marie Antoinette to Queen Victoria 
through this this these families. Isn't that nuts? Yeah, this is where r- the royalty was very closely related. All all the, the monarchs in, in Europe, to the point where King George the first, when he becomes king, he's German. He's not even English. In fact, he doesn't even speak English. <laughs> he's the king of England. He doesn't even speak English. Is his first language. You know, welcome, Your Majesty. Guten Tag. Ja, guten Morgen. <laughs> guten Morgen. Uh, was is going on? <laughs> uh, in fact, even his son George the second was not a person who spoke English as his first language. I don't even think he was born in England. George III is the first of the Hanover monarchs to have actually been born in England. Now, the important thing I forgot to mention here is that when William and Mary agreed to be king and queen of England, they had to, before they could officially be coronated, Parliament asked them to sign a little document, which was the English Bill of Rights. Right. And those basically greatly diminished the power of the monarchy and vested a lot of the power in Parliament, which is what they wanted. They want a republic, essentially, right? This is the point where basically the monarch becomes a constitutional monarch and not so much a reigning, a ruling monarch, right? Well, yes and no, right? It, there was still some transition that needed to happen. Yeah, the, the king essentially acts as an executive, very much like our president does. They have to approve and they can reject right. laws. They have to be the one to declare war and peace. You know, they, they are the ones who... Essentially, they're being held accountable for their actions at this point. Correct. They're still the head of state. They're also in charge of making sure the army is still standing and they can command the army and so forth. And he was born in 1738, two months premature. They thought he actually, he was not going to live, but he survived. And he ascended to the throne in 1760 at the young age of 22 years old. And I have to pause for a moment because we need to be very clear. At this time in history, being born two months premature... Was almost a death sentence. It was for pretty much anyone who wasn't royalty. Because if you didn't have that extreme level of care, the odds of you surviving were pretty much zilch. Exactly. I should note that he was not intended to be king. It was He was the grandson of George II, not the uh, son. His father, Frederick, who was the Prince of Wales, of course, the Prince of Wales, for those who are non-British... Uh, is the officially the the heir to the throne, right? When you're named the Prince of Wales, you're basically, you're the next in line. Uh, the Prince of Wales, uh, unfortunately, died of a lung injury, and that brought George to be the heir presumpt at that point, the heir apparent, um, until George II passed away. So he, he inherits the throne, and, you know, he's single. He doesn't have a wife yet, so there's all this speculation of who is he going to get married to. He has a he has a love interest with a, with a lady, Sarah, uh, is her name, and uh, it's heavily advised against because she's not noble enough, so he has to give up those aspirations. And eventually, he chooses Princess Charlotte of Mecklenburg-Steritz, and they meet on their wedding day. And at this point in time, it was common for monarchs to take mistresses, right? He didn't. They actually were very happily married. They had 15 children together. Oh, that's all. Only 15. Only 15. No. Yeah. It's just a small village. Nothing, yeah, really. With their children, not that much. You know? It's only, you know, three professional basketball of course. teams. That's all. Right. So, you know, he's he's norming into his position as the King of England. But he's also the Duke of Hanover, too, right? He's the Duke and the Prince Elector in the Holy Roman Empire. So he's kind of the guy who's his head in two different countries. And in fact, the British Parliament was worried about that with the Hanover kings. It's because they're like, well, they're really king of two different, two very distant countries. They're really not all that distant, but two culturally different countries. And, you know, it's interesting when we talk about how George III was this, you know, hated monarch in the United States. Um, I should say the American colonies to be, to be more contextual at this point. But his madness didn't really start till after we won our independence and after they lost the colonies. Whoops. Our bad. Yeah. Sorry about that. So it's it's all right. Um, <laughs> it's like, Eric, it's okay. Yeah. 
We have a nation. Yeah. The king just felt like, well, look, Parliament has the right to levy taxes. Why can't I do that with my colonies? He didn't see his actions as those of a tyrant, of course. We, of course, felt like the un- unjustified taxation and the limited power that the, the colonies had was in a way where there really wasn't a democratic process, right? Well, yeah, that and the vindictive and really uh, antagonistic way in which he went about it in response to our very feedback and, and suggestions to... sure. You know, ease up on it. Exactly. And we didn't have much say in the matter, right? The governor of the region had say in it, but he was basically just reporting from what the king wanted him to do, right? So we're not here to talk about the American Revolution, but there's that that sense, right? Of what's we, have going to, on. we have to at least address it, though. Exactly. Interestingly enough, George III was loved by his people. He was a very popular monarch, even in spite of his mental illness. Mental illness was, if anything, was a, a sympathy grabber for the public, you know, with the monarch isn't doing well, it brings people together because they're all kind of worried. And this is, I think, important because the role of king at this point changes from one of a political role to one of a cultural role. And to this point to where the monarch still stands today, they are a symbol of stability, especially a king who reigned for 50 years like this guy did. You know, he was king until his death in 1820. So, you know, he was a he was monarch for almost 60 years. Yeah. And now, even though the last 10 of them, he wasn't officially reigning. Officially, right. Because of his mental illness. Um, so you're telling me he was he was kind of nuts, but people liked him. So he was, he was kind of like the Gary Busey of his time. Yeah, I mean, and he, no, he caused his, he, and he did his fair share of mistakes. Yes, he's the Gary Busey. Um, in fact, if they were to do a George III movie, Gary Busey, Dead <laughs> Ringer. I love that Amazon commercial with him now. Have you seen it yet? Yeah, I saw it. it was oh my God, good. it's great. <laughs> Perfect editing. Now, he had his share of mistakes, too. At this point, the king had heavy influence over who became prime minister. Uh, he chose people who were prime minister who parliament didn't really want to be prime minister because he wanted to pick the guy who he felt was the best for the job. He was a meticulous reader of legislation, too. He was he took an active role in parliamentary duties because he felt like that was his job. You know, He would ask for clarification on the most minute details of bills that were being you know, handed to him. And he would introduce legislation, which is his right to do so at this point. But, you know, he also kind of did some strong arming. There was at one point uh, a bill in the House of Lords that would have was designed to transfer power uh, in India from the East Indian Training Company to parliamentary commissioners instead. But he actually was backing the opposition to the bill. And he basically told the House of Lords uh, after the House of Commons had passed it, look, if, you, if any of you vote for this bill, you're officially an enemy of the monarchy. Uh, which, which eventually effectively killed the bill. Yeah. And that caused some political turmoil. He uh, he actually had, that ended up having the uh, guy who was prime minister at the time dismissed from office because he didn't have any political power at that point. And uh, he appointed William Pitt the Younger as the prime minister. Um, but William Pitt wasn't necessarily enthused with that either. So he, he motioned to condemn the monarch from ever interfering with parliamentary uh, voting. He could, they're basically saying the monarch could introduce a bill, but he couldn't interfere with voting on it. To which George decides to just dissolve parliament <laughs> because he didn't like that. Now, in England, when you dissolve parliament, at this point in time, uh, you don't rule absolutely as Charles I had tried to do about 100 years before. Instead, you just force a parliamentary election to which Pitt gets reelected uh, with, with his majority power and then the law gets enacted anyway. He was kind of a mover and a shaker. At, at times, but still overall considered a good king. Active, 
very aware of, of what was going on around him. Very different from many of the other monarchs that we've talked about to this point. Correct. But then he does begin to kind of descend. He does. And he descends during some of his greatest victories, too. Because this is the king, who, remember, who the Duke of Wellington served underneath, right? He was the king who bested Napoleon. Yeah. And fought back the Napoleonic Empire, right? From re- reaching their way into England. So, you know, he was still considered this mighty military, you know, this imperial power. But in 1788, that's when we really start to see things start to change. And he starts getting these symptoms of stomach pains and cramps and rashes. His feet started swelling. His eyes would turn yellow. Hmm. He had trouble sleeping and his, his vision would blur. Now, they, these are claimed to be the, the causes of his mental illness. Keep in mind, with very little knowledge of modern medical science and the lavish lifestyle that monarchs would live, I find it more likely that the diet he was having, the lifestyle he was leading, probably caused a lot of these symptoms. And these symptoms... Some of it almost sounds like liver failure. Right, right. And maybe he's drinking too much. You know, England. in this point, England has established itself a reputation for having drinking as a national pastime. And that's not a stereotype. That's actually just a fact. Yeah. Uh, pretty much, you know. Uh, and I think a lot of our British listeners would agree <laughs> with that. I think there's hundreds of Brits nodding as you're talking. They're like, right. yeah, 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 it's true. Yeah. Um, but what's interesting was this treatment that they was given, gentian, which was a, a, a plant with blue flowers. That was these, this treatment he was given. And we, I actually think that that might have contributed more to his mental illness than these other symptoms, because I think that slowly poisoned him. Oh, you think he was having some sort of allergic reaction to it? Correct. And so they, they originally for years thought that these, his mental illness was related to the blood disease, uh, porphyria, uh-huh. uh, which is a disease where uh, of the... Things we were talking about, aches and pains, rashes, uh, the blood, your uh, your urine would turn blue. Um, but so does this flower. And so I think they misdiagnosed him because they were they didn't see the treatment as causing the issue. Today it would be considered Viagra poisoning, I believe. <laughs> right, that little blue pill. What are you going to do? And so this is just recent data that we're talking about. Uh, at the University of London, I should say at St. George's University of London, there are two doctors by the name of... Uh, Peter Gerard and Vasiliki uh, Retumi, and they, they analyzed George's personal writings. George was a very studious person. He was very well educated. He was the first English monarch to study science, by the way, and physics and chemistry. Very well-rounded. He had a liberal arts style of education, but he was also known for writing, and we, they noticed that when he was well, he wrote very eloquently and wrote very succinctly, but when he was ill, he would go off these very, very long-winded responses they were noticing it was not uncommon for a single sentence to be 400 words at points, with like eight of them only being verbs, <laughs> you know? My just, Lord. Yeah, just this incessant rambling, right? And he would repeat himself a lot. And when you look at those symptoms, in addition to the few of the other things he would do, especially the repeating himself, these guys are thinking these these are the symptoms of the manic phase of bipolar disorder. Yeah. You know, and in fact, there are some witnesses who called him being manic in some of his behaviors. So... We're thinking now, especially with the whole bit with the gentian and the, the porphyria uh, theory is really kind of out the window at this point. That Even though we didn't have a name for it, nor do we have the, the scientific data to fully support it, hmm. it sounds much more like bipolar disorder, which has been around since forever, really, but we didn't have a name for it until the 20th century. Right. Right? And which, which is what we're finding is the case with a lot of these monarchs. And uh, eventually, you know, they had to, to treat him in some way, and the doctors of the era didn't know really anything about how to deal with mental health. So they, they did the treatments that they knew would work, which was the common 18th century treatments, 
know, bleeding, blistering them, purging them, and then sedating him. And odd things, too. Like, he was left in a room in the winter that was not heated. I guess the cold air would somehow make the the illness go away. A lot of these weird remedies that don't really hold up to modern logic. Uh, and that obviously wasn't working, so they, they were kind of at a loss. So they found this guy named Dr. John Willis, who was, Wills, I should say, uh, who was the head of an asylum, and he was a former clergyman who became become a doctor. And uh, so he believed in kind of practicing firmness with humane treatment. So, you know, he kind of understood that when he was well, he would be out and George would be able to do what he wanted. But when he misbehaved, that's where he was actually really mistreated. I mean, he was put in straitjackets. He was tied to a chair. He was gagged. Like, this is the King of England we're talking about here. Jeez. And uh, when he was acting out, and again, these are probably in these, in these manic states, right? It's going to look like very absurd behavior, very unruly behavior. But really, he's just going through a chemical change in his brain that he has no control over, you know? It's very actually kind of sad. As the story continues, it also threw Parliament for a bit of a of a world because when he would have these manic bouts, Parliament was asking, well, who would actually be able to rule in his stead? Well, his son, who would become George IV, the Prince of Wales, right? He is like, well, let me do it. I mean, I'm I'm of, I'm of age at this point. He would have been an adult at this point. I can act as a regent, but Parliament didn't like him. That, or I should say the Prime Minister didn't like him all that much. So there was lots of this tension between who would be in charge. But thankfully, during all that tension, George would recuperate and the, the argument would just kind of go away for a while. When we get to 1811, he gets into a pretty firm and permanent state of mental illness. And uh, it's at that point where pretty much he goes into like a convalescence. You know, yeah. he's, he's you no, know, he doesn't really see the public very much anymore. Yes, he becomes the King of Hanover, but it's a ceremonial title because he wasn't doing anything. Right. George IV was the prince, officially eventually declared the prince regent. And George III was king in name only. You know, he, he was a figurehead, really. Exactly. George IV reigned England for much longer than before he was officially king. And George died in his, George III, I should say, just, you know, died in 1820 uh, at a very old age, considering uh, the time period. I think he would have been in his 70s at that point, 70s or 80s. Yeah, and considering the stress that was put on him during majority of his life, really, you know, whether it be from mental anguish in the latter half of his life or just from the stress of, you know, <laughs> losing the colonies, yeah. fighting against Napoleon, all the things that he did accomplish. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a tremendous strain on anyone who has full command of their mental faculties, let alone somebody who's suffering from this kind of late onset dementia, if you will. You sure. Know, whatever it was that brought it on, right? It is characteristic of dementia nonetheless. Absolutely, yeah. And um, it's very, very, just very sad. And so he was 82 when he when he died. It's a long life. It's a long yeah. life for somebody today. 60 years on the throne. He is the third longest reigning monarch. Incredible. He was the longest reigning monarch before Queen Victoria and, of course, Queen Elizabeth II. Who, yeah. But yeah, he set a precedent, you know, and he... And if it was for anything else, that stability, it was what kind of helped the monarchy stay afloat. Because yeah. they were, when governments were changing and prime ministers were changing, he was the one thing that could keep the country together. Well, they were incredibly lucky. Yeah. That it turned out the way it did. Yeah. Yeah, not every country was so lucky, was it? No. No, I think no. you've got a story that was going to kind of bring us downhill a little bit. <laughs> that was kind of an upper. Yeah. It's all downhill from That's here, That's the folks. upper for the episode, folks. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. We'll have to make a few lighthearted jokes here and there. You we're going to have to, yeah. All right. We've talked a lot about the many 
houses of Europe, right, that produced these kings and heirs and what have you that would, you know, rule so many various countries uh, throughout Europe. And there was another very active house, one that for several hundred years also had its place uh, essentially ruling the Holy Roman Empire, and that is the, the House of Habsburg. And we saw kings, you know, of Bohemia, England, Germany, Hungary, Croatia, Ireland, Portugal, and Spain. Yeah, I believe House of Habsburg is, if, if it's not the same house as the House of Hanover, is very closely tied to the same house, because we're talking around the same period of time, basically. Yeah, 1830, or sorry, sorry 1438 uh, to 1740. So long dynasty. Very, very long. Yeah. And with that came an obsession with inbreeding. Mm-hmm. And we've of course, talked pure about blood, this. right? Yeah, we've talked about this a lot. But it, it, it becomes no more obvious than it does in Spain. Because the amount of incestuous marriage that was going on had really skyrocketed. And we're talking about several instances over a period of a couple hundred years where that was absolutely the norm. Where you had uncles marrying nieces... You had cousin marriages, of course, but we're talking not just first cousins, but close first cousins. So what do I mean by that? Well, let's say you have two brothers uh, from one family, and you have two sisters from another family, and they each pair off, and they each produce offspring. These children, instead of having the traditional eight grandparents that you would find with most first cousins, instead only have four. There's not a lot of genetic diversity here. Right, And this actually is something common in my own family. My grandfather and his brother married my grandmother and her sister. So my father and his cousin are actually much closer genetically than most cousins are. Where the difference is, is that my father and his cousin didn't get married. Right. Here in, in Spain, that's, that's what was going on. These cousins who were so close genetically, they more or less could have just been brother or sister at that point. I mean, really, the, the, the genes are so close. As far as genetically speaking, there's, they're practically brother and sister. Practically. Yeah. I mean, not literally, but it, it's, it's close enough that what you start seeing are some very serious birth defects. And many of these individuals were destined to become, you know, the next ruler. So this is not a healthy way of, of continuing the rule of a country. And two very obvious examples of this, both share of the same name. We have Don Carlos and Carlos II, separated by nearly 100 years. But their two stories are very similar, and I wanted to touch on them both. Rather than doing kind of two separate spotlights, I thought they complemented each other because they were both people who were born into really very difficult circumstances. And um, not unlike our, our friend from Russia that we talked about in the last episode, uh, their madness was uncontrollable. It was something that it was going to be as a result of this, uh, of this insane practice of, of incest. That's where the real madness comes from. It's not so, so much that these folks themselves were, were mad, horrible, terrible people. It's that they were mentally ill, uh, that they suffered severe developmental delays but we're still put in these positions of power. And in many ways, we're puppets. We're being controlled and manipulated. And it's very sick and it's very sad and it's very disgusting, but it's, it's an important message to be delivered nonetheless, right? So I hate to bring it down, but it's important that we remember these individuals. And, you know, it's, like I said, it's important that we also clarify uh, they weren't bad people. 
they were sick. Right. We're going to talk about a bad person later who yeah. was also sick, but no matter which way you, you take it, there ain't no way you're painting Caligula in a positive light. That's just not going to happen. Correct. Uh, these folks, I, I, I give them the benefit of their missteps in life, the, the things that they had no way of controlling. Yeah, definitely. So uh, Don Carlos was the, the crown prince of the Spanish Empire at that point, and uh, he lived from 1545 to 1568. Not a very long life at all. He was 23 years old when he died. Um, he had a very, very sad life as his father, Philip II, uh, King of Spain, was married off at the age of 16. He himself was kind of an introvert, showed very little interest in women and, and sex in general, uh, probably because his father, Charles V, who was reigning emperor at this time, pretty much told him that sex was the, the purpose of reproduction. Right, was, well, is it, which is in line with the Catholic teaching that they were representing, right? Yeah, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't marry to enjoy sex. You got married to produce an offspring who would become your heir. With this, he uh, he enters into uh, the marriage with Maria Manuela of Portugal, and it's it's very difficult from the get go. Yeah, I believe Maria has her own her own history of uh, problems as well, as far as being considered mad. Uh, I think well, there's there's a few different Marias. This is not one who was considered to be mad. Okay, uh, there was also Juana the Mad who starts this whole dynasty of, of insanity, her and Isabel. I'll, I'll get to them in a minute. Okay. There's a lot of um, instability to talk about at this point. But uh, poor Carlos was born into this marriage just a few years later. And his uh, delivery was extremely difficult. In fact, Maria Manuela only lived four days afterwards. Wow. Uh, and when he was born, it was very obvious that he was going to suffer for the rest of his life. He suffered from a hunchback. He had a, uh, a pigeon breast with very uneven shoulders and legs. They were of different height mm. from one another. He w had severe developmental delays. So we're talking about only being able to speak at the age of about five. He eventually did start to kind of gain uh, command of his cognitive abilities as he got older. But it was very obvious that this delay was going to cause a lot of conflict within the family. His father shunned him immediately, absolutely hated him for who he was, and took very little interest in trying to produce any other heirs. Wow. Uh, in fact, it would really be Don Carlos who would who would only, you know, be his his only real viable heir. This is a really difficult situation for a child to be born into and it's kind of difficult for me to talk about because it hits close to home for me. Sure. I have a special needs child. Uh, I'm very fortunate that she has made a lot of progress, but she also has um, some delays. She's on the autism spectrum disorder, right? So she's she's somewhere on that spectrum. And to see a, a child born into this who has all these expectations of them, but none of the support and love of a parent to guide them, it breaks your heart. Yeah. And to see them then painted in history as being kind of insane and crazy, well, it's not fair. They just, they didn't get the same fair treatment in life as they as they deserve because they didn't have the same understanding of it that we did now exactly too. i mean there's a part of that but at the same time i, I don't think that uh any parent regardless of where you are in history should ever yeah. shun their child for being who they are we also have to remember this is a point in time where the understanding of the world and of science was one that was still deeply rooted in in the church right in religion and when we see these things happening I mean, even though we're, we're starting to learn more about it, we're getting into the Renaissance and we're starting to make more observations about the natural world than we've ever known before, 
this is still a point in time when we're we see any of these afflictions unfortunately as divinely imposed so people think of it even as punishment yeah and, and and philip was very much of that mindset uh as was his wife queen mary the first of yeah. england yeah uh, you know this is a bloody mary. bloody mary yeah <laughs> who while philip was having his own inquisitions she was off persecuting you know protestants in england mm-hmm. so these two didn't really work well together uh he hated her actually he despised her appearance uh openly commented on her odor uh, made really nasty comments. And, of course, all of this is with this young Don Carlos in tow, hearing all this, hearing the way that he's treating his new wife and the way that he talks about his son. It's no surprise that he has no boundaries. He has no limitations. He doesn't understand how to control his feelings. And he starts having these severe and violent episodes where he's lashing out at people like his his wet nurses. Because uh, he was being nursed until he was about five years old, so that that is um, even for ancient societies and old and and, and this time and period. It's period. A, it's history. an uncomfortably long time for that to be happening. <laughs> yeah, it, it, exactly. He had a very difficult time with pronunciation, uh, particularly R's and L's. Uh, he had a very difficult time associating with women, uh, as even as a child he was known to harass and torture young girls that he would be in the company of probably because he never really had a a strong male figure to guide him and was perhaps threatened by the very presence of women because he never really had a mother Mm. he had wet nurses but no one who had this really strong connection with him to to kind of guide was willing to love him and to to care for him and honestly sometimes that's just what it boils down to is you need to be able to to love someone so that they become a well-adjusted individual uh despite any difficulties they may have when it comes to to cognitive function and developmental function, love is a universal kind of thing, and it it, it can guide a child and, and help them. And he he had none of this. Uh, he started to take out his frustrations and anger on animals. Mm. There's reports of him mutilating the genitals of a dog. Okay, so one of the uh, signs of of psychosis, right? We talk about you know is very commonly associated with mutilating of animals. Yeah, he also started showing signs of epilepsy as well. Mm. And we've talked about this with some of these other monarchs. With Charles VI, yeah. Yeah, particularly those who were, again, products of of severe inbreeding. Sure. uh, That this epilepsy is passed down genetically and this mutation is just, it can cause severe problems with the brain. Um, To make a long story short, because we have another Carlos to talk about, as he got older, his resentment to his father became more and more profound and when charles v abdicated the throne and philip ii became king that's when you start hearing some very disturbing talk from don carlos talk about murdering his father killing him and taking over the country himself wanting to get rid of this nasty and abusive individual in his life and uh of course he was confiding in those that he had at least some connection with like his tutors and what have you who they felt it was their responsibility to report this to Philip. And as such, Philip II essentially went into a, um, a rampage. He uh, locked away Don Carlos and pretty much starved him to death. There, there, there's a lot of conversation about what happened to him exactly. Wow. Because while he, he didn't deny him food, Don Carlos went on a hunger strike as a opposition, in opposition to 
being locked away. His father, knowing that he didn't really have the ability to, to break away from something like that, if he was going to start exhibiting this kind of behavior, that's what was going to happen. He was going to keep doing it. He didn't have a sense of those kind of, okay, now it's time to stop because it's not working. He was just going to keep doing it. And his father essentially let him start starving himself. There are reports that quite possibly his father may have poisoned him because mm-hmm. there's uh, reports of him one day vomiting violently and having violent bouts of diarrhea and essentially, wow. you know, slowly wasting away in this tower locked away. Awful. Horrendous. Yeah. And, you know, some modern scholars say, well, there's really no evidence to suggest that he was poisoned. He may have died of natural causes. He may have died because of dysentery. Yeah. Dysentery was a common. Exactly. But the point is he wouldn't have if his father hadn't locked him up or just loved the kid. Right. So, you know, it's very, very difficult to talk about. And it's, it's very sad, but it's not uh, the only time that you're going to see this happen because a hundred years later, a very similar situation help it happened with uh, Carlos the second. Before you get to that, we have a, an unexpected visitor again. I'm almost, actually, I'm kind of glad this is happening now. I need a moment to gather myself. Yeah. I think I've seen pictures. This looks so familiar. Oh, hello. Hi. Hello. Yes, this is quite an interesting little place we are in tonight. You, um, I, you just you have you have such a striking face, and I, I know I know it from somewhere. Well, excuse in me. How rude of you! You should be bowing to me. You're supposed to bow three times: once when you come into the room, once when you are halfway there, and then once when you are in my in front of me. But you came in the room. Doesn't matter. So do I need to leave? Yes, you must go out the door and come back through. Yes, you must go out the door and come back through, and then of course, when you go out the door and come back through, you should bow oh, once okay. again. Oh, okay. When okay. you go in, and then once halfway, and then so once. You want, you want me to go out? Yes. Oh, this is awkward. Come in. <clears throat> there's your first bow. Third, second bow. Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's the third. Yes, yeah. very good. Thank you very much. Can yes, I sit yes. down now? I am George Third, King of Great Britain and Ireland, as well as the Duke of Hanover. Yes, oh. indeed. I heard my name being echoed through the holes of space yeah we were, we were just talking about you so yes. that makes sense yes yeah. this contraption that you're keeping your what is called this nerd cave had I, I i found it and i was able to do some minor analysis on it and i was able to figure out how it worked yes and have somehow traveled to your time it's quite quite interesting you're, you're awfully intelligent for the, the well it makes sense like you said you studied physics yes yes indeed i did study physics you're right, um, Brian. He's not nearly as nuts as I thought he would be. Yes, well, I do I do have a message I do want to, to share with you all. And, um, of course, this message that I want to share with you all is uh, it's a very important one. It involves the audible.com. You can read tons of books about my reign and the reign of other, you know, ancestors of England and so forth and so on. And so forth and so on. And so the way you go there, of course, is that you go to audibletrial.com slash nudonomy and of course you're on the internet while you're doing this yes and so you go to that website audibletrial.com slash nudonomy and when you go to that website audibletrial.com uh you can sign up for a free trial for the, for the audible service and uh, of course when you sign up for the free trial for the audible service you uh help out your nerds and, and give them a little commission and you can go on and you can read lots of books about the 
history of the British monarchy. Yeah, I think, and I think we've we've got that. Yeah, th- thanks. At this yeah, point. good, good. Well, I'm glad because I'm getting quite exhausted talking to you about. Oh, he fell asleep. He's standing still. He's still standing. Should we just should we just push him back through? I think that's a good idea. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. On the count of three. One, two, three. <laughs> God bless America. Well, I definitely see what they were saying about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little um, a little long-winded. A bit. It's gotta keep going. Yeah. And go. I think he's must still have, going. We must have caught him vortex. in one of his more manic phases. Yeah. Audible.com. That's good. Yeah. I like Audible.com. Yeah. Agreed. And of Definitely. course, when you go there, you're on the internet at this point. <laughs> right. right, right. <clears throat> of course, you're on the internet when you do this. And then you go to... Uh, you can also go to neurami.com and click on the Audible link on the right side of our webpage. Either that or the audibletrial.com While you're on the internet. While you're on, While you're on the internet. <laughs> uh, will help us out and give us a small commission. Yeah. All right. Very good. Well, uh, shall I get back to my incredibly sad and depressing story? Yeah. Let's took, do that. We t- took a left turn into the awkward. Let's go make a right <laughs> turn back into the depressing. So the next Carlos to talk about is Carlos II. This is this is a, a person who, who would become king, at least in name only. His mother essentially would rule in his stead. Okay. And he really had no other choice. Was he like a child king at this point? Or? He was three years old when he became king. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Even if he had been 20 when he became yeah. king. His majesty declares nap time for all in Spain. <laughs> Siesta. Siesta, yes. If only. If Yeah, if only. This is, this is, again, a very, very sad story. So this young king, one of the last, really, of the, of the Habsburg king lines, because upon his death would really be the, uh, the Spanish War of, of Succession. Uh, so mm. you know th- there was going to be not a whole lot left over for the for the Spanish monarchy. It would never exist like it did previous to this period. He was born again of a incestuous marriage, and when he when he came into the world, he had a severely misshapen head. His jaw was uh, extremely elongated and protruded. Uh, very, very crookedly from his face hmm. to the point where his teeth never really met. Really? So he had no ability to chew. Wow. He had a very, very large tongue, which made it incredibly difficult for him to speak. And with all of this, of course, came some severe developmental delay. Uh, he was about six years old when he had finally gained the ability to walk, but he really didn't walk until he was an adult, until he was nearly fully grown. Wow. And his body was really that of a sickly child, even as an adult. Uh, it never really, so truly never really, developed. So he, he looked like a child. In many ways. Wow. Yeah. Uh, very, very difficult. His father, Philip IV of Spain, uh, he had had five sons across two marriages, and Carlos was the only one left. Uh, and he was only three years old at the, upon the death of his father, and he hmm. became... He became the king of Spain. Uh, his mother, who was uh, of Austrian descent, from the same family, though, she pretty much had him signed off all of his responsibilities for the most part. 
but he um he uh god this i'm sorry it's just really sad to talk about he would eventually have to kind of assume the role of king he would have to kind of be brought forth into the public light and it was something that was incredibly difficult for him because he never really had the ability to to grasp exactly what was going on around him uh he was married twice in these marriages that were um that were arranged for him and he was essentially just being used as a sperm bank all they wanted him for more or less was to try to to consummate a marriage and produce an, an heir that's awful yeah the more you read about him the more you realize that they they really had no other purpose for him his wife who was french um marie louise of orleans um you know i feel really bad for her uh, the two of them spent oh gosh almost 10 years together wow yeah trying to consummate this marriage trying to have a child he couldn't do it his impotence was so severe that he finished before he could even start so to speak he was not able to to be with be with his wife in that sense so the two of them never had a child she became increasingly depressed and in her weight ballooned she became very unfit and very unhealthy and uh, eventually would die and this is probably the only woman this man has ever really tried to have a connection with and her death hit him very very hard and this is where some of his stranger behavior comes in because at this point he now starts exhuming the remains of his dead family members mm. something that another ancestor of his uh, juana the mad was also known to yeah do. she was known she kept her husband's corpse for years for years as she traveled she brought it along with her she opened it up several times at least four or five times that it can be confirmed there's other rumors that suggest that she did it more than that and was fully okay with the body decomposing and having it out and, and yeah. caressing it and cuddling with it and loving it and this, it's so fascinating that these many years later, you see a similar behavior also hmm. occurring to uh, to this young Carlos. He had a, um, a serious bone disease, uh, which we think most likely caused the the deformities that he suffered at childbirth or during, during gestation. Uh, we also think that he may have suffered from congenital syphilis. Hmm. His father was extremely well known for getting around yeah not practicing what he was preaching literally <laughs> gotcha and so uh, he was he was not the cause of it he was had been born with it essentially precisely and had inherited it I yeah the, that's the that's the general idea and that hmm. it caused a lot of these problems he as he got older became even more severe he lost all of his hair by the tip by age of 35 oh. uh he was going deaf oh, he no. was suffering severe bouts of epilepsy Wow. And um, he he died extremely young. Uh, he was 38 years old. He died November 1st, 1700. Oh. And uh, with his death <clears throat> would lead to the, the War of Succession. This, this desperation to, to continue the family line and to keep it as close as possible resulted in the inhumane treatment of these two Carloses. And it should really be a lesson to people out there. You know, if you're going to take the responsibility to bring a child into the world and you know that you're doing it in an irresponsible fashion, when that child comes in the world, they are your only responsibility. Sure. And I say that 
not in a judgmental sense. And I don't want people to write in and be all angry about what I'm saying, because you know what? I've experienced it. I am the father of a special needs child. And when my daughter came into this world and we determined that she wasn't developing in a typical sense, we've done everything, my wife and I, to give her every possible chance. And she is loved unconditionally in every way, shape, and form. She will thrive and is thriving right now. She's exceeding expectations because she has that support and love of her parents. And it really bothers me to see these people who had so much affluence, so much power, so much, even at their time, it, pleading ignorance across, you know, the eons and saying, oh, they didn't have the, the medical knowledge to understand what was going on. No, I'm sorry. that I don't believe it. That's BS. The, they knew that their children were different. In the case of Carlos II, it was undeniable. Both of the Carloses, they suffered from severe deformities. They knew that something was wrong. And even though they didn't know, perhaps, that it was the incest that was causing it, they should have taken responsibility and, and taken care of their children. Yeah, well, you know, it's been talked about, not necessarily on this podcast, but it's almost kind of just accepted now that, that love has a healing power to it, right? And it may not be in a metaphysical sense, um, but it does, like you said, love and support gives people confidence in that they can achieve more than they thought. If you shun these children because they're deformed when they're born or, again, developmentally disabled in some way, you're never going to give them the chance to reach above it. And in the case of Don Carlos, right, he was not a person who was completely uh, incapable of full development. Now, he had physical deformities, but he was able to... He was catching up. Exactly. Yeah. Now, he, like you said, he had a, a full cognitive capability of an adult at one point. Yeah. So... um it's just, it's very sad, and like you said. And, and it, you know, we're talking about mad and crazy rulers, but this is kind of the redemption part of the show, right? This is the kind of the part where these people are oftentimes thrown into this group because of people like Juana and people like Isabella who have more characteristics of madness and because they all belong to the same family. But it's right. time to kind of set the record straight. And what the true madness was, was the way that their parents behaved. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, they they were brought into extraordinary circumstances. A lot of these these monarchs all had parents, yeah, <laughs> and or had situations where they just it was the odds were stacked against them. And because I really wanted to cover both of them, and we didn't have a lot of time to do it, I did kind of have to cut out a lot. There's other things that happened within these individuals' lives, and I encourage people to go out there and learn yeah. more about them. We spent a long time talking about George the Third, so I I think I eat up ate up a good chunk of her time. I apologize about that. Well, you know what? It's okay because our our last two, well, not exactly contemporary because they do they are separated by a good number of years. They do belong both to the ancient world. So I think we can kind of work together with them, right? Sure. Yeah. So let's start with uh, our, our first biblical king that we've ever spoken about, right? Uh, Nebuchadnezzar II, uh, you know, of course, the king of Babylon. And, uh, you know, born in 634 BCE and reigned from 605 to 562 BCE. Uh, and he, he, again, was one of these kings who ascended the throne at adulthood. He was 31 years old. I won't talk about much of his achievements because, honestly, a lot of them can be found in, in a history book. And a lot of them can be found in the Bible as well because he's... Or if you think back to your sixth grade Mesopotamia lesson. Absolutely, yeah. Nebuchadnezzar, this is the, the eponymous Nebuchadnezzar of the Bible, of the book of Daniel, and also the book of Jeremiah. The one who 
through a series of invasions, conquered Judah and destroyed Solomon's temple, right? Solomon was not the king at that point, of course, as Zedekiah was at that point. But, you know, he inspired the famous psalm, by the rivers of Babylon, we wept, we sat and we wept for Zion because he, they had destroyed the Holy Land, the place that the Jews at this time viewed as sacred, what they thought was their, their promised land, right? So he was a mighty king. He, and he is a, he was a, one of the greatest warrior kings of the ancient world. He had allied himself with the Egyptians. He had beaten the Assyrians. He actually defeated the Egyptians, I should say, I'm sorry, uh, at Kardamesh in 601. And he controlled all the trade routes in Mesopotamia pretty much because of his military might from the Persian Gulf all the way through the Mediterranean. You know, he, he had this insane opulent power. Like his, the walls around the city-state of Babylon were, were so thick that they could hold chariot races on top of them. And these were like 56 miles in perimeter, you know. And he was so egotistical that he had on every brick of the city, and particularly the Ishtar Gate, right, one of the seven, the original seven ancient wonders of the world, he had on every brick inscribed, I am Nebuchadnezzar, king of, of Babylon. You know, very, very full of himself. Well, you don't want to forget. Sure. And we don't really know much about his insanity. We just know that for a long seven, time ago. Exactly. We All we know is that it lasted for approximately seven years, and he was known for uh, lots of animal-like behavior. You know, we're talking about walking on all fours. Uh, some stories, like in the Book of Daniel, described of him being cursed by God with living in the wild and living like an animal for Didn't seven years. did he graze years. like a goat at one point, eating grass? I wouldn't I be surprised. reading something about that. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. So I'm gonna, what I'm going to talk about, more or less, is the scholarly argument of whether he is or he isn't, wasn't insane. Because in the historical community, we all know that when the primary resource for this data is the Bible, we become very skeptical because the Bible is, of course, by its nature, a religious text for the most part. And it's very full of metaphor. Yeah. We've talked about how I've taken the Catholic angle a lot on this episode, and I will be totally transparent. My knowledge of the Old Testament is not as strong as New Testament going forward. But what I do know is there are several books in the Old Testament that were meant to be allegorical. They were meant to just document what was going on because it somehow tied into the story of the Jews. Book of Daniel was one of those. Book of Daniel was actually written in, in the first or second century BCE uh, and documented way back. And so Nebuchadnezzar's reign was so fresh in the minds and passed down through oral tradition that it eventually made its way into this book centuries later. And because of that, we don't know if it's legend or not. And there are a lot of scholars, because of that, they, they consider it, considered, well, it's just a legend at this point. Until recently, because they found in about 1975 a tablet that was in cuneiform, which of course was the written text of the Mesopotamians, right? Which and, means uh, wedge-shaped writing. Which, yes, uh, because just... it was the wedge that was formed from the stylus. That mm-hmm. it, it was theoretic at that point. You basically had these clay tablets that were, you know, whether while the clay was still wet, you would make the markings with the stylus, and essentially there are a series of dashes that are just shaped in the right way to make letters, right? To make these glyphs that we call sounds. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Sounds that we basically call cuneiform. And, in fact, there's a lovely version of the Code of Hammurabi that is in cuneiform at the Rosicrucian Egyptian Museum in San Jose. And I will state, for the record, it is the most precise replica of the Law Code of Hammurabi that is known to exist. It is very, yeah, and one of the earliest forms of of law, yeah. It's a cast from the original, which is currently held in the Louvre. Wow. And it is perfect. Just throwing it out there. It's quite striking, I will say, having observed it. Yeah. Keep in uh, mind, Hammurabi and Nebuchadnezzar were two different kings. Yes, yeah. very much so. 
Um, but in this cuneiform, which which would be Babylonian in nature, uh, we talk about they find these these writings about him referring to behavior as not giving life any value, giving contradictory or orders, uh, ignoring the counsel of his courtiers, neglecting his children, and, and it's speculated that his son Evil Marduk, not as in he was evil, but Evil Marduk <laughs> is just his name. Ironic, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he ruled as regent during these times of madness. So there's now some third party, I should say, speculative evidence that that can kind of confirm that, okay, maybe it's not just legend. Now, keep in mind, the Babylonians, very much like the ancient Egyptians, didn't like to document failure, right? So it's very unlikely that if there was any of this stuff happening, that they would have kept it in recording. They would have probably tried their best to hide it. And the fact that this tablet is in fragment form, split down the middle where you can't even read some of the sentences because the other half is missing, I think speaks to that, <laughs> that, that attempt to do that. Even though we don't yeah. know for sure, it's a pretty big indicator, right? There's some people who would speculate to his madness. is like, well, what was it? Some people think it would have been an, an advanced uh, onset of syphilis that may have caused the animal-like behavior. But if that's the case, it would have been permanent. It wouldn't have reverted back after right. after seven years, right? Seven is a very ancient number for completeness, so it makes sense that if you're talking about a temporary cycle, seven would be the number to associate with it. Um, but a lot of his symptoms would speak to the psychological disorder of lycanthropy. No, we're not talking about werewolves. <laughs> Damn it. No, sorry. How cool would it have been if Nebuchadnezzar was an... Was well, when you talk about lycanthropes now, because of modern fantasy, right? Yeah. You've got that name, and it's really, it's referring to the mindset of a man who behaves and acts like he thinks he's a wolf yeah think of it like a feral man one Mm -hmm. who would never like a tarzan kind of situation where you know never really had much human influence so raised among animals therefore they behave like an animal right so uh like in this case a wolf there's a lot of the behavior that's depicted in these paintings that you see which are from later on and from the descriptions in the book of daniel allude to those those symptoms but we also have to acknowledge the fact and you have really is that he sacked the temple of jerusalem yeah he's not gonna be really popular before that and considering the the authors of the old testament were the very people who were worshiping in that temple i think it's very likely that he was just he was very much painted in a negative light it's hard to confirm any of these reports yes and again especially at this time period exactly and again when you're a warrior king when you carry not just the political but the military power under your sword quite literally under your crown you're not going to tolerate propaganda or words that would just make you look negative you're going to try to do everything you can to eradicate them sure sure you know so of course there's not much control that when it's happening hundreds of years after exactly you lived yeah exactly so and all the historians who would have been able to speak to this probably were killed or just they just died out you know so it's one of those ancient mysteries that we'll never know for sure Right. Um, but we figured, since we're talking about our, our 10, we have to bring something from the ancient world, right? So, And I think we need to just quickly follow up with Caligula, because we're, whereas with Nebuchadnezzar, we're not quite sure, we're pretty damn sure yeah. that Caligula was Thankfully, nuts. Thankfully, even though the Republic, by the time he was the emperor, was pretty much just a pageant <laughs> of, of politics, the ability for people to write and not have their expressions suppressed by the government... That idea was not really in play at this point in time, unless they were, like, trying to make a move against the government, you know? People kept their mouths shut while he was alive, after he died, and I mean minutes after he died. 
They yeah. started writing it all sure. down and talking about it. And and to be totally fair too to our audience who want to know more about Killigula, we talked about him and I think in the Etu Gouffet episodes too, yeah. right? We talked to him because he was I think it was in part two. I think it was part two, yeah, the Roman Emperors that we covered. So So if you want to hear more specifics of his insanity, you can kind of And his background, right? His, yeah, you yeah. can you can follow up with that episode. But let's talk a little bit about the the very likely causes of his insanity. Because a lot of his behavior was incredibly manic. Uh, we're talking about sudden, violent mood swings that went from one moment of complete calm and composure to psychotic behavior, violence, rape, the massacre of not just people who were you know, slaves and or, or prisoners uh, that he was there to execute, but there's situations where he was entertaining himself in games and when they ran out of slaves for the lions to kill, he was just pick out people from the audience and have them killed. So this Roman citizens, Roman citizens who came there to watch the games and and, and be in his presence. Don't just watch the show; you could be in the show. <laughs> <laughs> in Vegas, it's a little different, though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah a little bit. Yeah, when you go into Sipa and Teller or Siegfried and Roy, you may end up being near the tigers but you don't get eaten by the tigers <laughs> <laughs> exactly with caligula's games it's uh anything goes but you, you know extraordinarily psychotic behavior what leads to it all because he wasn't the only roman emperor to exhibit very strange behavior tiberius before him was known for his fits of rage for his murderous rampages which let's also acknowledged that killed off most of Caligula's family with the exception of his sisters, which Caligula loved because he enjoyed having incestuous relationships with his sisters. But you also have Nero, who would follow, who was also a bit of a nutter. As we, we agreed, one of history's truly batch crazy yeah. <laughs> monarchs. Yeah, he was he was pretty nuts too. Although his was played up a little bit. As with Caligula, you can't deny it. Yeah, we talked about that, yeah. Yeah, but the diagnosis was almost certainly schizophrenia. Based on the way that he viewed himself and elevated himself to the status of God. You know, he had statues commissioned out of gold, which were dressed as Caligula every yeah. day. Which and again, worshipped as Caligula. Yeah, which again, a common trait of the ancient world up until the late part was to make kings divine, right? Yes, but not to assume that role in life. It was usually a rite of passage. Upon death, you kind of became that that divine being. He thought he was Jupiter. In in, in Rome, yes, yeah. I was thinking in other countries like Egypt, of course, or well, Japan. I, yeah, and yeah. even talking in Egypt, there, while there is this divineness within life, the, the true passage into the divine happens upon death. He believed he'd already reached the pinnacle of that. Mm. There was nothing else above that. And uh, that's... One of the primary reasons why later in life he continued to have incestuous relationships with his sisters. He looked to the Egyptians, who also oftentimes had brother-sister marriages, half-brother-sister marriages, and tried to emulate that. Yeah. And people would only put up with it for, for so long. I mean, he was obsessed with being bald to the point where it was actually a royal decree that you were not allowed to stand above Caligula. He was so self-conscious of his baldness and also of his extreme body hair. Hmm. If you were to make... <laughs> so in other words, Danny DeVito would be the perfect <laughs> person to cast as Caligula. <laughs> can you imagine Danny DeVito as Caligula? I can. That's what I I'm know. Doing. Isn't it terrifying? Oh, I don't want to think about that at all. 
Although if you've ever seen uh, it's it's always sunny in Philadelphia, there's a little of Caligula in that performance. I think <laughs> a little bit, yeah, <laughs> little Caligula, little Caligula. Um, <laughs> oh gosh, I mean, like I said, there's so much that has been said on the subject, but I think ultimately we have to acknowledge the lead because if you have somebody who's already suffering from a mental degeneration, like schizophrenia, which with being untreated and as you progress in age it generally the symptoms become worse he was known to have suffered from also again epilepsy which is very common in many of the stories that we have we have recounted uh he suffered bouts of severe illness and upon coming out of that severe illness that that extreme stress that was put on the body further you know amplified the psychotic behavior that he was having uh, and so while he starts out as actually a pretty benign ruler in the beginning, uh, despite being in the presence of Tiberius for as long as he was, he begins to degenerate almost immediately after one of those episodes, and I believe it was 37 BCE. He reigned for only four years because his reign of terror was so extreme uh, that he needed to be assassinated, and no one blinked an eye at it. Sure. Uh, he, his wife... And their uh, their infant child was murdered. Wow, infant child's a little extreme. Well, they were afraid because uh, the child was uh, a product of of incest. We're not sure if he or she would have been equally as insane as Caligula. And I'm he's the one I'm the most comfortable saying no. You were just off your rocker. Yeah, yeah. Excuse me, it was a daughter. Daughter, thank he you. He had okay. a daughter. Yeah, so, pardon me. But you know, it is it is very sad that they. They were so enraged at his, you know, atrocities that he had done as emperor that they had to commit to kill the whole family. Yeah, and let's just face it, it was probably the best. It was for the best. It really was. Caligula was the kind of person who, you know, you, you don't want to talk about euthanasia or killing people, you know, who have, you know, these problems. But this was somebody who was so out of control, who was in such a position of power, that at that time in history, in, in Roman society... yeah. There really was no other option. Sure, of course, because he's commanding the most powerful ancient empire at this point in time uh, in the known world, right? So yeah, there was there was no concept of a uh, convalescent home. Right. There was no ideas around how do we administer a, a treatment to him to try to give him help. There was none of that. Killing his wife and child again, I can never condone that, but. Considering the atrocities that that he committed, I don't think there was any other choice, really. It was the only way it was going to uh, end. Hmm. And with that, <laughs> we bring you to the end of our listener. And Rome was better episode. for it. Yeah, and Rome the Romans lived happily ever after. <laughs> yes, they did. They did not, but it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, the, it declined pretty quickly. It declined very quickly <laughs> at that point. But Claudius but, did a good job. But but they had a, they, they had a day. They had a day where everything was good. <laughs> it was it was spring. It was spring. It was very sunny. The marble just looked lovely. Well, this has been, to say the least, a um, exhausting, <laughs> an exhausting journey into history. But what I appreciate about it is that we're shedding more light on what these people were really like. What were the causes of it instead of just saying they were mad. I think the fact that we've tried to to bring it into a modern context um, helps us shed light for how we treat those around us today, right? And I, what I'm really grateful for is that even though our world is not perfect, we know so much more about how the human mind works 
that we can analyze, diagnose, and treat these issues a lot better now than they could have at these times. And unfortunately, all of these monarchs, all 10 of them, were, maybe with the exception of Farouk, because he was a 20th century one, yeah. very little excuse with him. Um, yeah. <laughs> all of them were kind of the victims of their circumstances, right? There, there was no way they could have known that those issues were, even King George III, they tried to treat him, and they really didn't know how. They, his, their treatment was to bleed him or to tie him up, essentially, yeah. you know? So um, we've made leaps and bounds, particularly in the last 50 years alone. We've made lots of leaps and bounds into mental health, and we've still got work to do. Now, yes, there's, we do. There's some disorders that are not on the, the definition list um, that need to be addressed, and there needs to be some psychological consensus uh, out there on a lot of these things that kind of just fall through the cracks. But nevertheless, progress has been made. It has. And that, I think, is a great example of history not repeating itself. Well said, Brian. Well said. Well, this has been a good month. I've really enjoyed this. I've enjoyed a lot of the topics that our, our listeners yeah, have given to us. Yeah, these were great suggestions. They really were. And we want more of them. So you know what? Do us a favor. Hit us up on an email. We can go to our website, nerdonomy.com, and click on that uh, listener feedback button and give us more. And that will email us directly, and we can we can hear your, your thoughts about doing a future episode. And while you're there, why don't you click on that donate button over on the right corner if you have it in your heart and your wallet you can throw us a little money we accept donations through paypal we can take donations as little as a dollar there's no uh, limit there's no limit exactly we, we, we stated before if you had gold bullion in your possession and you would like to send sure. it to us we're, we're willing to yeah. accept it so if you guys can't afford to do the things like the audible.com membership or any of the other affiliates we've got a donation a quick little donation is is great you know 10 bucks helps absolutely and Does. you know what better way to stay connected with us as well uh but to join our community Right. And go on Facebook. Join in the conversations that we're having on there all the time. You can also follow us on Twitter. You can follow me at the Brickmont. I'm at Brian Moriarty. And of course, our company at Nerdonomy, right? We do daily tweets and you can engage in the conversation with us that way as well. Well, my friend, we have uh, come to the end. Come to the end. Episode. We're about to hit summer. How crazy is that? I know. I know. Seems like my, my birthday is coming up soon. I feel like NMX was just like last week. Yeah. And that was January. That's nuts. I know. It's really, really weird. And you know what, folks? We we look forward to having a fun summer, and we hope you guys have a fun summer, too. Until we meet again, stay nerdy, and tune into us next week. Same nerd time, same nerd channel, nerdonomy.com. Goodbye. Later. So nature's miracle is not working on the carpet. I don't know why. I've tried OxyClean. I have tried uh, just using lemon juice. I've heard that was work. That made it smell worse. I don't know what is in the wheel's urine exactly, but um, it kind of smells like arsenic, to be totally honest. Wait, hang on. The wheel's saying something. Oh. Oh, God. Oh. Do I want to know? Uh, it's describing what will clean it up. How do you feel about hardwood floors? <laughs>